Acts chapter 19, as we move forward, verse 35, we pick up and it says, we, we read that we're at the point now where the town clerk takes over. We spoke about the events leading up to this, and we got into it some, but there's some other things to look at this morning. Acts 19, verse 35. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of Ephesus is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. And there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. There being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse, when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Go to chapter 20. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed forth to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him, and he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanying him into Asia, so Peter of Berea and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Sagundus and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, these going before tarried for us at Troas. This is the forward part as Paul heads towards his missionary journey. That was a very big event that happened at Troas. And what happens here is everyone comes together. Basically, the fact that you're reading in chapter 20 that Paul actually wound up in Macedonia in and of itself is a miracle. The question this morning is actually, we looked last week on the trials basically that really wrapped around this missionary journey of Paul. What can God do with our trials in our lives? What can the Lord do when we are having perilous times? We see others that we're praying for. If you're here at the Wednesday night prayer meeting or if you read the prayer chain, you can see there's an immense amount of prayer requests and there are people that are on our hearts. This, this past Wednesday evening we had... We had a prayer, a prayer request for one that was in the hospital, and both of um, both two two that were usually come on Wednesday night, Anna and Mike, were in the hospital with Anna's father. And then we had another situation where I I, I brought up a prayer request where uh, a friend of mine that I knew in school she had cancer a year ago. She'd been in remission, fifty six years old. It came back a couple weeks ago, and the doctor gave her a couple weeks, and she died. And these are, these are trials. These are, there's so many examples. And we're praying hard for this family. We're praying for the families in this church. I mean, look, Teresa's been mentioning her niece, Kimberly Bryan, over and over and over again. And the, and the progression of the ministry of this, this young woman who has cancer, she's been incredible. And it's been like a novel hearing it, like every Wednesday night, seeing the progression of how this goes week after week after week and how many people are, are healed and how many people the Lord deals with all of us and He shows us, but one way or the other, whether the answer that He gives us is what we want to hear or not, the wonderful thing about it is He's in the middle of it. And can He, can he heal our trials? And the question is yes. And there's a, 
what you have to see in like a, a passage like this, you're not going to read in the verses at the end of Acts chapter 19. You're not going to see God takes care of all of our trials. This is exactly what he did for Paul, Aristarchus, and Gaius. He brought them out. This was his providence. This is how he works, and this is what he does. You're not going to read that. But you draw that out of it when you study it, and you see the after effects. Whenever you see an action, actions are wonderful in the Bible because the Bible says, the Lord says, faith without works is dead, and the Lord over and over again gives actions. Actions are important, and when you see the results of those actions, there's your answer as to what happened. Did the Lord deliver Paul or didn't he? This is not up for some theological debate. You go to chapter 20, that's why I went in there, and you see Paul got out of this theater. How did he get out of this theater? So last week we talked about the details. We talked about Diana. And I think this is fascinating. Can our Lord deliver us from these trials? We see that the class last week, we talked about the details of Diana, how Paul purposed in the Spirit, how at one point he already wanted to go to Macedonia. But you see, he wasn't there, was he? The Lord wanted him back here at Ephesus. And what's amazing is here, you don't hear a whole lot from Paul during this. You don't hear him preaching. You don't hear anything, any type of like just overview or details. He remains quiet because he's kind of like in the background. We read in the verses what happens. Gaius and Aristarchus and the disciples says, Paul, don't go in there. This is going to be a real hotbed. So we don't know exactly where he was, but he was somewhere not far. He's still in Asia Minor. He's in Ephesus. We don't hear a whole lot. We, get into, we got into the, Diane's, the, the Diana incident. We consider Paul's notions. We have read before, we were talking about Rome. And there's one thing I wanted to talk about, just real quick. When Paul starts writing to the Corinthians, he opens up in 1 Corinthians. And there is all kinds of really fascinating doctrinal um, in, insinuations and lessons in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One of the things that Paul talks about is what is the delivering factor? What is it that Christ has and the action that he has performed that shows us deliverance? And when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you go through 21 to 32, Paul talks about where's the wise, where's the scribe, where's the wisdom of the world? But he says it's the preaching of the cross that people hate. He says it's the preaching of the cross. And we've learned before that there are so many components to these words of Paul. But one of the components is, if you read into that, it shows how the cross of Jesus Christ, it delivers. That atonement delivers us. It gives us hope. It gives us confidence in our soul to know that that death, burial, and resurrection and that atonement was what we needed because we're just wicked sinners in our hearts. And the greatest liberation you will ever have in your in your whole entire life is to know that you are wicked you are a sinner but you are perfect and righteous because of the blood of jesus christ and you cannot deny that no one can deny that you will never be perfect and righteous by another man you'll never be you will never be perfect and righteous by money you can't bribe god that's what it is when money is being offered in order to be able to elevate you to get to a place where you're closer to God, you're, you're bribing him. It's no different than going down to the police and trying to get out of something by trying to give the chief you know, a few thousand bucks. You can't do it. It's by the blood of Christ, by his atonement. 
that's what Paul's driving home and what we're learning here. And we see here how important it is that we are all idle factories. And if you remember that incredible term, that Latin term last week, idolorum fabricam from, fabricam from, uh, um, from John Calvin, he, he brings it together and he says the human heart is a perpetual idle factory. And this, is the, this was the case that we saw here in the, in the situation with, with, with Diana. He says the human heart is a perpetual idle factory. And that idols are handcrafted representations of God, typically in the form of a picture or statue, and they specifically are created to give an invisible deity a visible form. Calvin explains that idols replace the true invisible divine reality with a corrupted falsehood visible physical reality. And so for Calvin, idolatry occurs every time the truth about God is exchanged for a lie. We go back to Romans 1.25. This is where we were headed last week. We were talking about how in man's capacity, man likes to, to fabricate all of these things that he can hold on to and he can bring himself back to. It's his own way of, of having his own like, uh, means of salvation by holding on to a false idol. All throughout the Old Testament, the Lord spoke about the serious nature of worshiping false idols and how He would just rend and take all of the blessings away from those that He blessed and He would curse them if they turned their backs on Him. And we saw, we saw this time after time after time. Paul had already staked his claim in the midst of the modern-day academicians. Later on in his prison epistles, he says that all of his knowledge and all of his authority that was given to him as a Pharisee was but dung. And he said everything from Christ is everything to him. What did Christ say? You know, these were perilous times. These were very hard times. Back then, today we can say the same thing. I think we're on a much more level of comfort than these dear people were back in this day, back in Asia Minor. In Ephesus, Paul goes to Macedonia. His living quarters were very base. And all the horrible things he had to go through when they had to take these ships and go back from Corinth and go back into Antioch and go back and forth and the shipwreck. and It was horrible. And what the Lord tells us in Luke chapter 19, 13, who could look that up? Luke 19, 13, because someone look that up and read it. Christ talks about, talks to his ten servants in parabolic form regarding the nobleman. What does he say? Luke 19, 13. That's it. Thank you, Teresa. He says to occupy. One of the hardest parts about occupying till Christ comes back are the trials. The trials, they come and they come and they come. It doesn't matter what it is. You, you, you get enough of them all together during a, during a week, in one week, and it's enough to just play. <laughs> you just want to blow up. You know, something happens to the dog. Something happens to the cat. The car breaks down. You know, mom or dad or your grandma or grandpa, they just got sick and they're going into the hospital. One thing after another just builds up and you're like, where's the Lord in all of this? Well, I'm here to tell you that He's there. He's always there. And we have to be careful with idol worship because that can really take us completely away from that wonderful comfort that the Lord gives us here this Roman deity equated with Artemis as Diana, this whole Asia Minor, 
This, this man claims, this, 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 this town clerk claims, basically, that all of Asia Minor and the world worships this false female idol. So last week, we left off with the details. This week, what is the instrument that, you, that the Lord uses to lift the trial? What does he do? How does he use these wicked means in order to free Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and some of the other disciples that were there in the middle of this hotbed where all of these Diana worshipers were coming after him? Lisey. Right. 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 That, you know, Diana came down from heaven and all this, I mean, it's, it's all a lie. Jupiter and all this stuff. Right. But he's using this unsaved man to calm these people down and remind them of their own walls. Right. I, I think that's amazing. And can I just say one other thing? Sure. Right. It, it reminds me of what we were talking about Wednesday night. We're getting ready to leave the book of John for a little bit soon. We're going to go into the end of Luke and we're going to look at Christ when, just like Lisey said, he just he arrives on the road of Emmaus and he peer, appears to Cleophas and his friend. And they're talking about this Galilean, or they, they call him a Galilean, I believe, or Nazareth. He got crucified. And they're talking about all these things about Christ, what happened with his crucifixion. And he comes up and he just walks right, just like Lisey's talking about, he goes, Did you, have you heard about these things? And Christ goes, what things? He knew all of it, but there he asked questions in order to teach them and to love them. I love that. I think that's a great point. And he, all of a sudden Christ just appears and he may just have come by Paul. He spoke to Paul, go back to 18. What did he tell Paul? Keep going. Keep talking, and he said, don't hold back. Whatever you do, you preach the whole council. We will see that in Acts 20. That's a very, very important verse. But with all of this coming together, before we get into this, I want to ask a question. I hope you're, I really hope everybody here is, can remember and into the Bible enough to remember certain major events. But let me just give it away here quickly because so we can get moving. The Lord uses certain means in order to take a very small amount of faithful people away from a horrible, bloodthirsty mob. This has happened before in Scripture. Does anybody remember where? Do you have any examples of that? Where large people were coming after God's people and the Lord spared them. And I'm trying to build a case here because it's happened over and over and over and over many times. That's the first one, yes. I mean, there's some very general, very big, big events. That's, a, that's perfect because they're standing on 
the shore. At this point, I think Moses at 80 years old, right in his 80s, he had probably some of the greatest faith he ever had in his life, and he's standing there with that rod. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, that's, that's where in my notes. That's a good one. Lisey. Right. 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 The Lord will. They withheld him. Once again, that's a great example. Going back to the Red Sea, the people were not looking at God; they were looking at the Egyptians. When all those six hundred crazy Egyptian horsemen were coming at them, and they were screaming and yelling, and they were coming after them to slaughter them and kill them, Moses raises that rod, and that Red Sea parts. And he took every one of them over there. Look at that. Does anybody remember the Assyrians? Remember that event that happened? The Assyrians, there's 185,000 of them. That, that, that number ought to ring a bell. 185,000 of them were going into Israel. And Isaiah was there at the time. Hezekiah was there. He, they were going in to destroy Israel, to go into Jerusalem, overtake the temple, overtake all the artifacts, take everything and destroy the Israelites. They were blaspheming the name of God. How many angels did it take to stop the Assyrians? One. One angel. And the next morning they get up, and the Israelites go, and the Lord hands them all their gold and silver, gives them all the artifacts. This is, there's so many events that we can read about. Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a big one. I have that here somewhere. I got a lot of notes today. But uh, Psalm 115, Matthew 6, 24... It's here. There it is. Dave, you've been elected to read Genesis 19.11. You brought up a good example there. What did they do? Does anybody remember? What happened? Why, how did these men get stopped from going in and doing these horrible, filthy acts on these angels? Genesis 19.11. Good reminder. couldn't even find the door they were so blind you know when you go blind you, it takes a long time for you to learn how to get around it takes a long time to learn to make read braille or learn all kinds of things they were immediately smoked blind they couldn't even find the door the Lord can do that God can do he can do that what can he do in our own lives that's the case that I'm trying to build this morning if he can do that and he can confound these wicked don't think it was just two or three that might have been a hundred people out in front of that door, smacking down on that door, trying to come in and get those angels. And the Lord smote them, took the, they, they made them blind. Look what happened there. There's a lot of other examples. You know, I think a big example is, I think one of the reasons that the Lord showed Noah how to build that ark wasn't just to protect him from being drowned. I think he was protecting him from being murdered by those wicked people in town. They hated him. He preached to them for a hundred years and they mocked him and they laughed at him. And he gave them an instrument of salvation. 
just like that big whale for Jonah was an instrument of salvation. It was not an instrument of destruction. Without that whale, he'd have been breathing in water. And, uh, and look, at, look at how the Lord delivered Jonah. These trials come in our lives, and over and over and over again, the Lord protects us. I think a big one was that massive dramatic scene right after the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes up, and there they are. There's the cohort of Roman soldiers, and they're all standing there. A cohort is about 300 Roman soldiers. What did they need 300 Roman soldiers to detain this little man from Nazareth? Do you ever think about that? What was so threatening about him? They knew that he had power because of the miracles. At that point, Christ had told the disciples that nothing would happen to them. And they're standing there with him. As soon as he says the words, I am he, the cohort falls to the ground backwards. They fell. They couldn't even hold themselves up. At that point, they could have taken the disciples and they could have murdered every single one of them because they were very, very close to Jesus. Even Peter was worried about it because he would already denied him thrice. And that's another event where there were 300 Roman soldiers and not one of, their heads, one of the hairs on their head was touched. What's happening here is when they go into this theater, when we see what happens in this theater... They could have destroyed these disciples. This could have been it. This could have been the end of Paul's missionary journey. This is a major trial, and Paul talks about it later. We're going to see that. But basically, what is, what is the component that brings people to be so violent? We don't see that they were violent against the Pharisees. The Pharisees were there. They called Alexander, and they said, bring him up. We want him to speak against Paul, and we want him to show and to expose this man who loves Jesus Christ. And immediately the town clerk shut him up. That was the Lord. The Lord used that town clerk in order to turn this situation around and to upend the possible violence that Paul could have gotten. So what happens here? People were confused because they were worshiping a false idol. The false idol was Diana. The false idol was a female representation that didn't even exist and they were literally ready to kill people for not worshiping this idol. I got a question for you. Something happened this week. It happens this time every year. What is the most... Has anybody heard about this? What, is, what, what has won the award for the number one word this year that has been... They have a word that gets actually an award or something like that for the most time it's used or the most it, from a dictionaries. That, did anybody hear about what word it is from this year? Huh? Nope. This year, the word that has been actually looked up twice as much as any word in the whole dictionary is the word woman. Wow. It, woman. <clears throat> That's the problem. Let me read you this. This is how confused people can get and how horrible this can be. The word was selected in part... Let me go back a little bit. Woman and its definition were both at the center of a various significant moments globally over the last 12 months, according to John Kelly, Senior Director of the Editorial of the Dictionary.com. The word was selected in part because its typical annual search volume doubled over the last 12 months, according to a press release shared Tuesday by the website. Woman, quote-unquote, and its definition were both at the center of various consequential moments, discussions, and decisions in our society in 2022. 
Nobody knows what a woman is anymore. This is crazy. Selecting woman as our word of the year, he says, provides an acknowledgement of the gravity of the various events affecting women in 2022. From our perspective as observers and recorders of language change, the word woman is a prime example of the many gender terms of undergoing shifts in how to whom they applied, Kelly tells people. Our selection of woman as our 2022 word of the year reflects how gender identity and language are shaping our current cultural conversation and how it shapes much of our work as a, as a dictionary, he adds. To select the word of the year, Kelly tells people, a word must see a significant increase in searches. People had to look up what a woman was. Right. What is a woman? All right, I guess, exactly. I guess next year the word will be man. <laughs> I mean, that's got to happen. People don't know what a woman is anymore. People don't know what a man is. We know what a woman is. The Lord tells us what a woman is. And when the Lord tells us what a woman is, we know as a man, a woman is a wonderful thing. Today a woman is now a horrible thing. We don't even want a woman to be a woman to be anymore. What we want to do is go, if we're a woman, go get hacked up and become a man or vice versa. But there's no, the thing that a woman always has always stood for is protection in the home. A wonderful mother, Proverbs 31, a, a virtuous woman that takes care of her kids, that takes care of her family. That's a joke anymore. Right now, with this whole new millennial thing going on, there's all kinds of, uh, you can look it up, you know, I've been reading these things, that the last thing that young people basically want to do today is get married and have families. They don't want to own homes anymore. And a, that's the number one word, woman. You see how confused people get? That's what it was here. People were confused with a woman here in Ephesus in Asia Minor. Diana, they're crying out, great is the goddess Diana, a woman that didn't even exist. And here, Artemis, another uh, Greek goddess, Diana. And it was so enraging that basically this theater was nothing but a hotbed for these Christians. Just like America. America is becoming a great big theater against the Christians. Here, Alexander was brought in as a tent by the Jews to have him come against Paul and Gaius. Basically, Aristarchus and the Christian movement was there. They wanted him to be a witness to cause violence. But remember, in this theater, they may have very well had ferocious lions and tigers of the sort that could be released to tear the accused to shred. Here, once again, the idol-worshipping, Christ-hating Jews would try and wedge themselves in this riot to destroy Paul so the chant breaks out, great is Diana. Now it's getting way out of hand, and all of a sudden something happens. What does the magistrate do? He defends Diana and says that everyone knows that this is the current community conscience. I think that is, for the lack of a better term, everybody's doing it. So how dare you come up against it? That's what we see today. If it's community conscience, don't cry out against it. Matt, Right. Yeah. Right. It's all these big names they come up with. Like when you're going to slaughter a baby. What we do up in New York, call it reproductive health care. Reproductive health. It's not reproductive and it's not health care. But according to them, it is. Section, getting back to this again, I know it sounds repetitive, but it's been a while since I said it. 
if you go in the if if you go into the IRS, I know I'm probably thrown in jail for this, but if you go into the IRS code with 501c3, you go in section 35, this pertains to any churches that sign the documents about getting exempt. What you are as a church is you're trading in your immunity to Thomas Jefferson, who was supposed to be a deist and wasn't supposed to be a Christian. I think he was. He put back in 1765, church is supposed to be immune. It's supposed to be not ever sanctioned by the state. There's your separation of church and state. That meant that the state cannot come in and tell you what to learn and what to preach, or any of us. We're not supposed to do that. So what happens in 501c3, that very term shows up right in there in section 35, current community conscience. If you are exempt, if you sign the papers, and current community conscience is that abortion is legal and homosexuality is, you're not, about, you're not supposed to talk about it. And, you're not, and it also says in there, in all these different points, you're not supposed to ma- mention any politicians and go out against them. Okay, that's current community con- conscience. Well, right, right here in Ephesus... What was current community conscience? The goddess Diana is worshipped in Asia Minor and all around the world. Don't even dare, don't even dare cry out against her. And whatever you do, I mean, you got to really think about this. Really not much, actually. They didn't care about that stupid statue. It was making some of the biggest money they'd ever seen. People were buying those statues of Diana left and right, and, they, and it was hurting their economy. So when you start hurting the economy of filth, you're going to start getting some real contention. Paul wasn't out. Paul was not out there in order to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to make some big fortune. That's obvious. He was a tent maker and he paid his own bills. He was out there to expose the lies. And when he did, the lions roared. We see here that this magistrate uses something very interesting And it's amazing what the Lord does. It's amazing what happens here. Actually, I heard I was I read one account in a in a uh, I I read an account in one of one one commentary that said basically a meteorite actually fell down to the ground, and that does happen. A meteorite fell, and it was actually in the shape of a woman, and that's when they came up with Diana, and they kept that. And these people actually thought they were wardens of this meteorite that came down from Jupiter, and that they were actually worshiping Diana because of this meteorite. I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly it says that the word Jupiter's there in the verse, in that verse there. That's right. They go crazy over this stuff. Well, what we see here is the Lord uses, actually uses Diana as the instrument of protection to spare Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and all these Christians that were there. How does he do that? Well, everything is under God's control. As we've read, we've seen how it was the Lord that hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over again. And here's how he used the town clerk. Can the Lord Lord lift our trials? The problem that we have is about our trials is when we have one, we want to immediately have it eradicated when we pray to the Lord and we wake up the next morning. If he's not like little kazoo sitting on our shoulder, snapping his fingers and making it happen in a second, then all of a sudden, ah, he's not God. He doesn't love me. What's the use? 
Part of the secret or the magic of being a Christian is what James says, let patience perform her perfect work. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes these things time. You don't go out there, if your engine blows up, you don't go out there and get a wrench and expect to take the wrench and throw it at it and the thing rebuilds itself. It takes time to put that engine back together. Lisey. Right. Right. And then it's amazing how he gives us patience Right. That's right. Like David cries out in Psalm 52, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. The Lord, David begged for this. And here he, why is he begging anybody? He was the king of the world. He was the whole king. He was it. And here he is knowing that he had a king. He had a king over him. That's a great point. Look at Psalm 103, verses 1 through 10. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, thank the Lord, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. David says if he had, who could stand? Who could stand if he rewarded us according to our iniquities? So why cry out against him? This magistrate says nobody is going to come out and ever talk against Diana these men did not bring any violence. They did not blaspheme Diana. They did not do anything that was outside of what they were supposed to do to harm us. Leave them alone. Once again, the Lord uses their God to actually fall by their own weight to protect those Christians. And that's exactly what the Lord did with Lisi was talking about. Moses, he used those plagues where they're God's. And it was those plagues that the Lord used against the Egyptians in order to sit them down and to try to wake them up. The Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart, but those plagues were all predicated on their gods. This instrument of salvation for the disciples was Diana. When they were the very one they were, all the wicked were worshiping and the pagans. And so it was the town clerk that said, nobody can touch Diana, leave these Christians alone. Leave them alone. And there you have it. That's what happened. You know who the magistrate was? This guy was no small little town uh, Barney Fife. He was no little guy. This guy was pretty big. He was a magistrate. He was also the secretary. He was a chief administrator. He was the register of the games of the Olympics and would actually choose the winner in the Olympic events. That and he would actually stand up. He's the one that would quell this rebellion. 
This was an interesting lesson. Re- remember the words of Solomon. He, when the first thing that this magistrate does, he somehow, there was probably, this place seated 25,000 people in this theater. He had to quiet 25,000 people. They didn't, have a, they didn't have some kind of electronic microphone system. It was an amphitheater so he could be heard. The first thing he did was he took all these people and he quieted them down. How in the world did he do that? By the Lord. He quieted them down. What is Solomon? What do we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 17? Can somebody look that up? Ecclesiastes 9, 17, and then we're going to read 9, 18. So keep, your hand, keep, keep that page for a minute. We see great words of wisdom from Solomon that deals with such a loud and riotous crowd. This town clerk would take measures to quiet the rebellion. He was protecting the Christians by quelling this rebellion and quieting them down. Look at, look at Ecclesiastes 9.17. Who has that? Go ahead. Look at that. He quiets them down. Somehow, some way. How do you go in? Have you ever tried to quiet 50 people down? When they're going at it. Have you ever watched British Parliament? Boy, they go at it. It's not like Congress. Those people go at it. They go, they're, they're, they're sitting in those seats when they go at these legislative, these bills and all, and they're there with the, uh, they're there with the Prime Minister. When you're at British Parliament, man, they get real vocal. And it's hard for the Prime Minister to quiet them down. Just that little bit of people. Can you imagine going into a stadium? At a normal crowd at an Oriole game is like 25,000 people. And that's, a, that's actually a pretty good crowd these days. 25. You ever try to quiet, get up and try to quiet all them down? Well, he does it. Jacob, while you're still there, read verse 19. I mean, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18. That's a big verse. You can see what's happening in America. One sinner destroyeth much good. Look at all the wicked sinners that are destroying much good that was in this country. But it says, wisdom is better than weapons of war. Demetrius had caused the dissension among this mob, and the Jews have done nothing. They're getting no, Paul and Aristarchus and Gaius are getting no protection at all. But this magistrate calls every, calms everyone down. He humors the crowd with an acknowledgement of Diana, who was celebrated goddess of the Ephesians, and it says nobody is going to talk out against her. And so... Here, our Lord perfectly controls this situation. Once again, he pushes Satan off. Satan would have Paul, Aristarchus, Gaius, and any of the followers of Christ destroyed. And here we see that Diana actually turns out to be the instrument of salvation for them. What does he say, ye men of Ephesus? What man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? And of the image which fell down from Jupiter, seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. That's exactly what they were doing, was speaking against Diana. But he says, ah, they can't do it, don't worry about them. It was a strenuous, very hard situation. I'm going to leave you with this. We're going to get back into this. We're going to go towards chapter 20 next week. This, this evidently was a very hard moment for Paul in his life. Let me read you a little bit of commentary here from Matthew Henry. This, he speaks of Paul. 
how he was seconded in his purpose and obliged to pursue it by the troubles which at length he met with at Ephesus. It was strange that he had been quiet there so long. I agree with that. Yet it should seem he had met with trouble there not recorded in this story, for in his epistle written at this time he speaks of his having fought with beasts of Ephesus. Could someone look up 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32? 1 Corinthians 15, 32. And then also 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Can someone else look that up? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. So whoever has 1 Corinthians 15, 32, go ahead and read it. Mm. Hard, very, very stern warning, stern words from Paul. Who has 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9? Thank you, Lisey. Go ahead. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. You see this? Both of these verses said Asia Minor, they said Ephesus. Paul is going back and he's telling us that he was there. He's telling us that he was in the middle of this hotbed and this, whatever happened, had an effect on him mentally. In fact, he was rebuked later on by the Lord for for this depression that he had and the Lord told him, he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. We don't know what the thorn in his side was, but I believe one, it probably could have been one of many. And one of those thorns might have been Accounts of what happened in this theater had a major effect on Paul, the rest of his ministry. It was hard. We don't know what really happened in there, but we know that it was a very difficult moment for him. But then when all this is done, the magistrate brings peace, he quells the rebellion, and he tells the assembly in verse 41, settle down, and that's it. And and Paul got out of there. This is an incredible story. You read it and you study it. It's amazing how the Lord can, can... He can quell the riots of these wicked, riotous people, and He can do the same thing in the trials in our lives. And that's something we can really learn from. Let's finish this morning. I'll ask, uh, uh, Jacob, could you close us this morning in prayer? Thank you.